I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is James Capretta. He is a senior fellow and holds the Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies healthcare, entitlement programs, and fiscal trends in advanced economies. His latest book, U.S. Health Policy and Market Reforms, was released in September. Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be with you today. We had Ovik Roy on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he gave us a pretty grim picture on the future of the economics of American healthcare. You know, the cost of healthcare is going up faster than wage growth or income growth. Healthcare is a bigger and bigger percentage of everyone's paycheck. Deductibles for a lot of people have almost tripled over the last 10 years. And healthcare spending by the government is the biggest single driver of our deficit, it seems. Indeed, the debt held by the public at the end of October of this year was $24 trillion. The average family spends more on healthcare than the taxes they pay. Physician visits and drugs are more expensive here than they are elsewhere. This is the case even though it seems, at least as of a few years ago, that the average length of hospitalization in the U.S. was about two days below the average of other similarly industrialized countries. And it's true despite the fact that we lead the world in generic drug utilization. So we have a a sense of the incredible scope of the problem, but I'd like to get into the details of how we actually address this problem. So on a broad level, in order to control these costs, do we need less U.S. government involvement, more government involvement? Which lever are we kind of pulling here? A little bit of both and why? Good introductory question, kind of right at the heart of the matter. I would say that you need a little bit of both, right? You need the right kind of government intervention. The United States has a very advanced and diverse and dispersed network of very high-end hospital systems, health systems, physician practices, labs. It's, It's quite a large and sophisticated system that can deliver world-class care. And very often, the care that people get through it is good, at, at, you know, at least good enough and, and often much better than that. It's, it's fragmented. It's, it's frustrating. It's um, a little bit bureaucratic and overbuilt and in way too many administrative expenses associated with it. But the actual care people get is generally pretty good, okay? Not perfect, but generally pretty good. The big problem that you put your finger on is it lacks very good discipline. It lacks accountability. It lacks cost discipline. It lacks quality discipline. And so there's lots of bad care that's delivered, overpriced care, duplicative care. And why is that occurring? It's because neither the government nor the market are really fully in control. It's a U.S., oftentimes people who are advocates of having the government have a greater say in things will say, well, the U.S. has tried a free market health system and it's failed. But that's sort of a caricature and not really the reality of the situation. To describe what's going on in the United States as free market health care is to really misrepresent what's going on as you as a practicing, practicing physician know well. There's lots of things that are beyond the reach of the government. The government, however, especially the federal government, is the biggest player in American health care. It sets the terms on many levels for insurance, for how providers get paid for services, for the qualifications to be able to practice and so on. So the government's knee deep into this thing. The question is, how can the government and private enterprise work together to bring a more disciplined system about where the patient benefits by getting higher quality, higher value care at lower prices. Now, there are really only two choices there, okay? One is for the government to just say, we're going to pay less for a lot of things. We are not going to bother with trying to figure it out. We're just going to say to the physicians, to the hospitals, to the drug companies, the labs, everybody's getting 25% less. (laughs) okay, which is essentially, that's a bit of a caricature, but it's essentially what many other high-income countries do. They just pay less, okay, through a government regulation of some sort. The problem with that is, is you don't know if you're paying the right price. 
you could lead, you could end up leading to supply problems, quality problems. Many other high income countries, you know, they do have access problems. It's hard to get services under certain conditions. Just look at what's happening in the UK, for instance. And so, I think what we want to do in the United States, and what my book is about, is saying let's put the right policies in place that allow the patient consumer to identify and select really good high quality care that actually costs less, okay? And that means the right kind of government intervention, structuring the market so it's easy to see when someone is offering a service at a lower price and very high quality. And they can take that as opposed to low quality, high price, which is often too often the case still in the United States. So that's a long way of kind of introducing this topic, but you get, I think you get the idea of sort of where I'm coming from. I do. Thanks. And I, I'm glad you brought up this idea of putting power back in the hands of, of the patient in a way, because you know, one of the big difficulties I think in creating competition in our medical system is creating a, a sense of patient choice. And a recent survey showed that only 13% of patients had attempted to ascertain the cost of any of the care they had received in advance, and only 3% had attempted to compare pricing from alternative suppliers from seeking out care. I think this is something that you cite in, in your book. And, and as you pointed out, we can't always choose where we're seen or by whom we're seen. Sure, you know, some people can shop around for an elective surgery that's not urgent, but even by the looks of those statistics, that doesn't seem to be happening necessarily. But if you're having a heart attack or you're in need of, of an emergency surgery, it's seemingly impossible. Uh, so how do we create patient choice, competition, to bring down healthcare prices in, in these instances? Good. To, ex another excellent question. So you're right on, you're right on point on these, on these topics. Well, let's start by saying this, that there are really two types of competition that can help the patient. One is when, and we'll get to your question in a second, but first let's just identify the other version, which is when someone selects a health plan, okay, that can have an effect on their costs that they experience by the premium that they pay for that plan, and then by the management that's in, involved in the plan they select and making sure they get high quality care. So, you know, that's the idea behind, for instance, HMOs, health, their health plans. So in a sense, the, the consumer patient hires the health plan to do the hard work of figuring out, hey, where should I send this patient when they need that type of service? That's what these health plans are supposed to be doing, okay? They, many of them don't do it very well, but that's what they're supposed to be doing. It's helping the patient identify those good kinds of services so that they don't have to do the hard work themselves. Now, having said that, as your question indicated, in about 40%, maybe a little higher now, 45% of cases, patients are receiving services that are... To, put, to describe it as something that can be scheduled and have sort of a beginning and an end to it, okay? They're, they're bite-sized things that they need to get done. And it's in those, in that category of care that they have, there's a possibility of some patient choice and some clear price competition amongst the providers to bring down the overall cost. To do it, to make it work, I think really two elements are really required. One is strict standardization of what is being priced because healthcare is complicated. So let's say you say to the orthopedics out there, orthopedic surgeons out there, hey, if you want to be an orthopedic surgeon, great, go to it. We want you to do many, many procedures. But if you're going to be in the business of doing that, you have to post an all-in price for anyone who wants to come in and get, you know, any one of two dozen different kinds of surgical procedures that are normally done in those kinds of practices. Obviously, the big ones are joint replacement, okay? So let's say, you, you know, you say to them, anyone who comes in and needs a, needs a hip replacement, you got to post an all-in price, and it covers everything from the, you know, the, the preoperative, you know, steps that go through, that are gone through, some lab testing, some radiology, the actual procedure, the outpatient center that gets a fee, you know, the anesthesiologist who's there when you're doing it to the, the patient, 
the medical device that you implant, okay, and then maybe 30 days or 60 days of post-operative rehab, you kind of say, here's what we're going to charge to take care of your, your hip replacement. And then you say that to, if you say that to every orthopedic surgeon in the country, they got to post that kind of all-in price and they have to work with the affiliated providers to make this price work. And then you say to the patients, okay, you get to pick anyone you want. You go anywhere you want, but your insurance plan will give you the value of whatever they were going to pay for that surgery as cash if you want it. And you can decide which one of these you want to go to. So if you pick a lower priced one, you are going to keep the savings directly yourself. Okay. So you see there are these two elements to it, standardization and direct financial incentive for the patient. Both are largely not existent today because once you blow through your deductible, which you will in any kind of high, high-end procedure, you don't care what the price is. The plan's going to pay irrespective. So you have to make this price competition work even when people have blown through their deductible. Secondly, there isn't strict standardization. So you go to one orthopedic surgeon, they say, here's what I charge, but I haven't really coordinated with the anesthesiologist. You got to do that yourself. Then you got to call the anesthesiologist around town to find out what their prices are. It's impossible for the patient to do that. Okay. So there has to be some bundling and pricing and standardization by the provider community to make it work. Okay. So that's a long-winded answer, but I think you get you get a you get a sense of how what you need to do in the next couple of steps you need to take to kind of get this done. We're actually getting close, believe it or not, to actually doing this, but we're not there yet. I would say we're still at least a couple of years away. You know, one of the other problems I think, just from my own anecdotal experience, is that physicians don't know the costs of <laughs> what they're doing. Like, Absolutely. I have, to, I have to admit ignorance, you know, about what it costs when I order a patient an MRI or a CAT scan or a certain lab. I really have no idea, right. which seems crazy to me. It's like the two people who are most intimately involved yeah. in this have no clue. Yeah. And on those, those are the easiest ones too, by the way. I mean, we ought to have a system in this country where Anytime anyone gets an MRI, it's a, you know, it's, there's you being a physician probably know this better than others, but I mean, there's a lot of physicians who will say, well, yeah, there is some quality difference between where you get your MRI. Some of them do a lousy job and some of them do a pretty good job, you know? And so I tend to send my patients to the place I think is a little more reliable and the pictures are going to come back clear and I'll know what's going on, you know? And then that's true. But honestly, taking MRI pictures of people, ought to be kind of like a commodity. It ought to be something that is pretty, you know, you describe what's needed, you send the person over, they run them through the machine for a while, and, you know, the pictures should be pretty much the same no matter where you go. So it ought to be a commodity, which means the only, when with commodities, the biggest differentiator should be the price, right? So why are we paying $800 for an MRI when there's a facility down the street that's charging 200 Shouldn't we maybe save the 600 bucks and maybe give it to the patient, you know, or at least have them keep some portion of it if they pick the $200 facility. So those are the kinds of things we not, we ought to be uh, getting, getting uh, on with here pretty quick. Right. Let's talk about this, the maybe federal and state split, because a few years ago in an essay on a federal state framework for market-based reform, you wrote that undoubtedly the best protection against the federal government's tendency to overextend its reach is to have states serve as the main administrators of a market-based system. Do you think that's still true today? And, and how do you see that playing out in healthcare reform? I do. I still think there's a big, I mean, it's a big country we have here. And so, you know, and healthcare is very local, as you know. And so, Local dynamics matter a great deal. And so it's very difficult for the federal government to write uniform, systematic rules that apply across the country without bumping over all kinds of local considerations. So you need a big state, you know, role in this administration, which they already have, right? As you know, the licensure system for clinicians, for physicians and others is a state system, right? They can work together through, you know, essentially voluntary agreements between them, but they are really the 
arbiters of who gets to practice medicine and who doesn't, and also which facilities get licensed to serve patients as you know inpatient facilities. Those that's all run by the states. Okay, now there's a big federal overlay now because of Medicare and Medicaid about quality standards and so on and pay for payment. But the basic question of who gets to participate in the market is run by the states. I don't think they all do a great job. Some of them are too restrictive. Frankly, this is not a knock on your profession, but some might be a little bit too captured by their the physician community who restricts supply a little bit too much. It'd be better to open the doors a little wider, frankly, including to immigrant doctors. And so I, you know, I have some beefs with it. But on the other hand, I, I think it's better to have a state-based system than a federal system. And, you know, we have a big Medicaid program, state administered. So, you know, there's a big element here of state role and how we run this. Regulate, uh, insurance has generally been, except for the employer community, the big employer community, I mean, it's a state-based system. So I think we need to kind of keep that and just make it work better in, in a more normalized way across the whole country in terms of a market. I want to talk about Medicaid for sure, because it's such a big an important topic. But I saw this statistic in your book and I was really bowled over. You know, in 2021, 28 million US residents went without health care insurance or health without health insurance, even though two thirds of that population was eligible for coverage subsidized by the federal government or Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program chip that is entirely free. I was just really, really was in shock. Why? Why is it? Because we know that health insurance, it it may not correlate with certain measures of physical health. I guess I think there's some question about that. But for sure, we know people are more psychologically at peace with with health insurance. So there definitely is some impact on health. So why are why are people not enrolling? How, how do you think it ought to affect the way we? think about reforming our healthcare system. Yeah, I, I think this is a very big, poorly understood issue. And I think you're right to, to raise it. I think it's something that really needs policymakers to focus a little more on. The, the bottom line of what you're getting at here is that we could largely cover the uninsured already with existing programs without creating anything new if we just did a better job of identifying identifying and putting people into the coverage they're already eligible for. So when you hear a politician rail against the U.S. healthcare and say, we still have 30 million uninsured, you know, and it costs too much, and therefore we need to, you know, run to a single payer plan. The first question that ought to be asked is, well, wait a second. I mean, isn't it true that these people, the 30 million you talk about, are already eligible, as you've indicated? And yet they are. So why aren't they signed up? Well, you know, a thousand reasons. It's a voluntary system. Right. So the Affordable Care Act that you, you know, passed in 2010, in, in a sense, tried to make mandatory participate, tried to make insu- participation in insurance mandatory to some degree. That did not fly with the American public. OK. And eventually the mandate got repealed. The t- penalty to make it requirement got repealed. And so now the entire system remains voluntary. You don't have to have health insurance in the United States. As you indicate, you should, though for your own good, because it does bring a lot of mental health benefits, for sure. That's been demonstrated in a lot of empirical evidence. And I believe it also brings a lot of physical benefits, too. There are There is a lot of evidence accumulating that if you delay, you wait, you don't go right away when something's not right because you don't have health insurance, you know, the problem's going to get worse. And there's, you know, there's pretty good data out there now that shows that the mortality will be higher and, um, you know, uh, lots of morbidity problems as well. So I think health insurance is good to have. This two-thirds of the 30 million could be enrolled. The question is why are they not? It's because they don't know about it. They're busy people. They're not sick. You know, they've been pushed off of one program and they haven't bothered to sign up to for another one, right? So maybe they've lost eligibility for Medicaid because their income went up, but they they now work you know, for a small employer that doesn't offer. And so they have to go in the exchange if they want insurance. So there's lots of disconnects when you switch coverage. So there's a, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why people aren't covered when they could be. 
I think the bottom line answer is to, to lower the friction to stay covered. And I think the way to do that is to build a much more seamless automated system, run through the states again, but facilitated with federal data that allows people to get placed into coverage based on their income from the prior year and just say, hey, you're in this program. You don't have to be. You can drop out if you want, but we're going to put you in since you hadn't signed up. And if you want to drop out, just let us know. So you kind of have the presumption of coverage rather than the other way around where they have to go through the work themselves to stay covered. I do see this in practice a lot too, where patients, their health insurance changes on the regular, depending on their job, depending on whether they qualify for Medicaid or Medicare. And it becomes very difficult to juggle these things because their medications sometimes will be covered under one plan, but not the next one. And I mean, it must be chaos for them to have to deal with this because they end up calling up the company. They're on you know hold for 15. I mean, it's just, it's a whole process. It just, it seems like we could have a much more seamless system, as you point out. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's dissatisfaction with healthcare in the United States. If you look at the polling data, people are very happy with people like you, their doctor. They like their personal doctors. They like the physicians they interact with. They think they do get good care. By and large, not in every case, but by and large, they are, they're happy with the clinician system, the facility system. They're unhappy with the complexity, the bureaucracy, the paperwork, the duplication, the irrationality of it, the fragmentation of it, the lack of coordination, the disconnects, on and on and on. So it's a, you know, it can be a very frustrating system to navigate for patients, and we, we put too much on the patient to navigate it. And so we need a better system that allows people to kind of, if we're, gonna, if we're not going to have the government just take over the whole thing with a single payer system, you're going to have multiple payers, you need them to work better together so that the patient doesn't get kind of pushed around too much in the process. Let's talk about Medicaid. It's the largest public insurance program in the U.S. by total enrollment. And the principal motivation of the Affordable Care Act, as you mentioned earlier, was to expand insurance for people in the United States, essentially using Medicaid. And it has been somewhat successful in doing so. In 2020, it increased the number of Medicaid participants by 12.3 million, I think is the statistic that you cite in your book. And Medicaid pays for for more than 40% of all births, finances 30% of all nursing home care, and 60% of home health visits. Yet here too, you know, the costs are rising. So in 1970, the total cost was less than 0.5% of GDP. By 2020, it had risen to 3.3% of GDP. And it's one of the three entitlement programs, along with Social Security and Medicare, that has dramatically affected the budget outlook. By 2050, these three programs will be about 17.1% of GDP. So whether some of this is due to expanded enrollment and coverage within Medicaid, it does seem that this rise is concerning. How do you see reforming a program like Medicaid and cutting its costs while still fulfilling the purpose of creating a safety net for those who can least afford it? Yeah. Well, the most most of the, the those are really relevant points. The 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 one thing for cost savings would be that Medicaid's got a funny two-thirds, one-third dynamic going here, right? One-third of the people, you know, generate, you know, this is in rough terms, you know, one-third of the people generate two-thirds of the costs, and the other two-thirds generate one-third of the costs, right? So people who use Medicaid for health insurance, which is sort of the thing that's on most people's minds, I think, about when they think about Medicaid, they tend to be working families with children who don't get health insurance through their place of work, and they have low incomes. And so they end up being with incomes below a certain level, and they can qualify for Medicaid coverage. And there are millions and millions and millions of families who get Medicaid because of those characteristics, and they use Medicaid predominantly as a health insurance program, right? They, they just like we would use you know, the, the people that are not on Medicaid use a private health insurance company for their acute care needs to see a doctor in case they need to go to a hospital because if something happens, they break their leg, you know, that kind of thing. That's what health insurance is used for, for people below the age of 65 and the non-disabled population. And that's what Medicaid has lots of people in the program for. And honestly, they are 
you know, it's not cheap to do that for so many people, but overall on a per person basis, it's not, it's not terribly expensive in relative terms. The big expense in Medicaid is for coordinating long-term care services for people that are both Medicare and Medicaid eligible, the so-called dual eligibles. Okay. For them, you know, Medicaid is a, a very expensive uh, proposition because they're paying for institutional care for a lot of people or lots of long-term services and supports in the home to help a very sick, potentially elderly person or a very, you know, maybe not sick, but disabled person who needs a lot of help with daily activities. So that's the big expense in Medicaid. And I think if you're looking to save money in Medicaid, I would look first for this long-term care elderly disabled population in terms of how to, not to cut benefits because they probably actually need some additional services, but what to, there's a lot of lack of coordination there. And there's a lot of efforts that can be done to try to prevent institutionalizations when they're not necessary. And so many people are working hard on trying to make this whole system of LTSS, long-term services and supports in Medicaid, work better with the Medicare population so that the overall costs are lower, but the, the services are actually more expansive. And I think that's a good area to focus on for cost savings. On the other hand, you know, you got the Medicaid folks who are on the program for health insurance. I think there, keep in mind, there's still probably a group that needs, because there's not really going to be another option, you know, it's the non-expansion states. I, in some ways, I understand their reluctance. But, you know, if those folks are below the poverty line and they're not eligible for Medicaid, I mean, where are they going to get health insurance, right? So I think those states are going to have to think long and hard about what's the realistic alternative to putting at least the people below the poverty line on Medicaid. And what do you see are some of those proposals that have been floated by folks or are being discussed about these, you know, long-term service, like reforming these long-term services and bringing down their costs? Well, the primary one is, you know, as a physician, I'm sure you see this, is that, look, if someone comes into the Medicare program at age 65 and they're relatively healthy, but, you know, their income is not high, but they're on Medicare only, but they get then 10 years into their, their elderly years and they're 75 or maybe 80, new needs are going to arise and they might end up getting onto Medicaid because, suddenly they do need some additional supports at home to stay in their home. And so what you ought to be doing from the get-go when someone comes into Medicare is start thinking ahead, make the Medicare Advantage plans, think ahead to, hey, if I sign someone up at 65, I got to be making investments now to try to prevent too much expense down the road when they need a little additional support to stay in their homes. And so I would start working with the Medicare Advantage plans and also the Medicaid managed care contractors to say there some additional foresight is needed here <laughs> because the folks you're signing up now, you know, their health will not be static. And, you know, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, some additional services might be needed. You could lower the expense of those additional services through investments today by having that person engage in some preventative activities. And also planning ahead, having the home ready for them, you know, as they get older, making it fall proof, you know, doing things to sort of mitigate the risk of aging that everyone faces as they get older. You mentioned Medicare, and it also seems to be a big driver of healthcare costs, particularly because, as you know, we have this aging population. What do you see as the, the pivotal reforms necessary to control? Medicare costs? Well, let me put a plug in for another book since you bring it up. There's a new book out from AEI edited by Paul Ryan and Angela Rashidi, which I authored a chapter in on, on Medicare reform. And the book is called American Renewal. And so your audience can look it up online at AEI.org. It's, I'm going to give a little bit of a plug here because I think it's worth looking at across not just Medicare, but many different dimensions in terms of how to reform American government. Uh, but on the chapter on Medicare, in the chapter on Medicare, which is frankly duplicative a little bit of the chapter I wrote for the book you already mentioned, uh, the one on U.S. health policy and market reforms, uh, this chapter on Medicare says essentially the following, a little bit repetitive of what I've already said on the program is Medicare needs to have more structure to it so that 
the beneficiary population, when they're selecting their coverage, ha- can easily identify the low-cost, high-value plans. And then they also need to be able to save some money when they pick low-cost, high-value service providers, the physician community, the diagnostic tests, the MRI machines. <laughs> so the same, ele- the same reforms that I've been talking about broadly for American healthcare apply also in Medicare, uh, for and American healthcare also apply in Medicare for the senior population. A lot of people say, well, the elderly, they're not going to be great consumers, you know, and there's some truth to that a little bit. But frankly, a lot of people end up on Medicare, you know, are on Medicare at 65. And they're perfectly capable, just as they were at 64, of picking a health plan, and they do today in large numbers. And if they aren't capable and they need assistance, there are ways to provide it both from families and also from other outside brokers. And so, you know, we can we can create a system that allows the elderly population to start more clearly seeing, hey, when I could save 20, 30, 40, 50 dollars a month on premium and I not lose any benefits, here's the way to do it. And I think that kind of pressure, especially through the Medicare Advantage program as it competes with the traditional program, that would that would drive down costs sort of a, through a bidding system. And I think that's sort of the, the, the best way to go there. So you see Medicare Advantage as being the, the healthy alternative to a government-run Medicare for all? Only Medicare Advantage is there today, and many plans are doing a great job. I would say it's, the way it's designed now is not optimal for reducing costs, unfortunately. You need a bidding system with fee-for-service part of the bidding system and the beneficiary and the standardization of the benefits upon which they are bidding so that the beneficiary can easily see the premium difference between fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage. In many parts of the country, Medicare Advantage plans will be less expensive, but not everywhere. There will be some places where fee-for-service is less expensive because it's price-regulated, okay? And so... Fee-for-service might actually gain from this kind of approach. But my, my view is create a level playing field, have each of the sides of the program bid, and create supplemental packages to it that are paid entirely by the beneficiaries that are also standardized. So that easily everyone, and only a few of them, so you can easily start to see price differences in the premium and, and drive down overall costs. Just to clarify, what do you mean by bidding? Well, bidding means essentially the plans say, submit to the government, here's the premium we would charge for the standard benefit, okay? So if you redesign the benefit and make it a little more rational and then say to the Medicare Advantage plans and traditional program, what's the premium going to be to make sure you cover all your expenses? And then you can compare exactly the premiums charged by the Medicare Advantage plans with traditional fee-for-service and charge the beneficiaries accordingly. Now, it's gone under the name of premium support in prior rounds, and uh, you know it's got a political controversy around it because of it. But CBO and others have looked at this and said it's – CBO being an acronym, it's Congressional Budget Office have looked at it and said this would save some money. It's not going to be you – know, they don't think it's going to be the transformative reform that I think it would be, but they still say it would save some money. Let's switch gears and talk about – employer health insurance. Because I I just, from what I've heard when Ovik was on the podcast, from what I've read, there seems to be a general consensus uh, that employer-sponsored health insurance kind of wreaked a bit of havoc on the American medical system. So employers increase benefits to lure employees to jobs, offer increasingly exorbitant health insurance plans. And we don't know really what we're paying for those health insurance plans. And nearly 57% of the non-elderly population is enrolled in employer-sponsored health insurance. There are consequences for the healthcare system with increasing costs, but those consequences kind of seem to feed back onto those with employer-sponsored insurance plans via stagnating wage growth. From 2009 to 2018, the total compensation for middle-income households grew at an annual average rate of 2.6% but wages themselves grew by less than 1% per year over the same period. So all that wage growth is stagnating because of the growing cost of health insurance. I'm not so sure that employee-sponsored health insurance is all bad. It does seem like it's a easy way to get health insurance, but as it currently stands, it, it just seems unsustainable. How, how do we reform employee, employer-sponsored health insurance such that we keep what is valuable about it 
and lower our our costs. Yeah. Well, I think I'm with you on the the your two clauses there at the end. I'm with you on the first one, which is I'm not I'm I'm not all against employer sponsored health insurance. In fact, I would very much favor retaining it. I think it, you know it is the fastest, most direct way to deliver private health coverage to a very large segment of the working age population and their families. So in terms of a mechanism that's already established that gets private coverage out there, not governmental run coverage, but private coverage through private insurance or employer, you know, self-insured plans, the fastest way to get that out to a large portion of the American public is through the employer community. So put me down as being very much on the side of retaining it as a major feature of American healthcare. Having said that, here's the but, you know, I agree with you. There are some serious issues here that need to be addressed because it's creating a lot of financial pressure. And those issues include trying to, you know, address the, there's a collective action problem in the employer sponsored insurance. You get, I've been dealing, doing this for a long time now, and you periodically will see people pop up, big employers pop up saying, I'm going to try to fix American healthcare through my employer plan. And I've got some ideas of how to run my plan better and more efficiently. And, you know, and the, the, many of the ideas they promote in advance are good ones, ones that I definitely support. The problem is they're just one employer. And as you indicated in your intro in this question, health benefits are intended to be a good news when an employer offers that to a worker. It's compensation, right? So one employer that might be running their health plan a little more strictly with a little more discipline to an employee that might look like less choice, a little less generosity. And so that employer might start to say, look, if I run my health plan, if I run a really tight ship on my health through my health plan, and the employer down the street who I'm competing with is loosey-goosey and lets people spend on whatever and spends a lot of money through their health benefit, will I be at a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis the labor that I can attract, the workers that I can attract? And so there's a collective action problem. You're never going to get one, even big, one big employer being able to drive transformational change through employer system, the employer system. You need a public policy change. You need to direct the entire employer system in a better direction through a change that applies to all of them so that nobody has a competitive advantage by ignoring the, the new rules. Okay. So what does that mean? That basically means, I think, in the chapter in the book, describes a plan where you try to incent the employer community through a tax credit system that would displace to some degree the existing tax subsidy, a tax credit system that has some strings attached to it that sort of says the two things that I've been harping on this whole program, you know, a structured market at the plan level and at the provider level, make those absolutely required features of every employer health offering, that they have to have some competition at the plan level where it's standardized and transparent to their workers, and a premium difference is easily seen. That's got to be number one. Then the plans that they offer also have to have some element of provider competition where the patient can shop around for those, that 40% that is shoppable, they can shop around for it and save some money when they pick a lower priced option. I think that is the way to push the employer community to start kind of rowing all in the same direction in a more cost-effective way and bring the cost down. So you're not, I just want to clarify the tax point because these plans now sort of fly under the radar in that sense, like they're not taxable. So you're saying you would give a a tax subsidy to the employers. So you give them, let's say $1,000, but the rest of it is taxable? No, it would be, there's a lot of history here, Aaron. So let me just review it for your listeners so they kind of get a get a fuller picture of where we are with all of this. This is a very complicated topic. But in the Affordable Care Act, it was kind of amazingly, really, because of the Democratic president and Democratic Congress, they imposed a tax on employer-sponsored health care called the Cadillac tax. Okay. It applied at the employer level, not the worker level. Okay. I like to I 
it was hugely unpopular. Okay. It was hugely unpopular with the employer community, with labor, with Democrats, with Republicans, but nonetheless, it was in the bill because they were trying to make the thing work. Okay. And after it got enacted, I used to joke a little bit with, if I ever had an, somebody, you know, talking in front of a group of people about what was in the Affordable Care Act, I told everybody it was everybody's least favorite provision and my favorite provision. Okay. It was one of the elements of the Affordable Care Act I really wished would have survived. Okay. Because it would have brought uniform discipline. Again, back to this collective action problem. It applied to everybody equally. Okay. Um, but politics overwhelmed it and it got repealed. Okay. So where are we then? Well, what I would do is instead of trying to be punitive about it with a Cadillac tax, instead of the stick, let's offer a carrot that kind of has a stick attached to it. You say to the employers, look, we're going to make this tax subsidy you enjoy today because employer-provided health care is not taxed in any way by the, at the employer level or the worker level. Because of that, we, we want to make some of the financing of this instead of you know below the table, you know on the table. We want to make it clear that we are tax subsidizing with a new tax credit, but that will displace the hidden tax subsidy to some degree because you only get the tax credit if the total value of your plan doesn't generate even a bigger liability for the federal government through foregone taxes. Okay, so it's conditions. The conditions attached to the tax credit make it neutral tax-wise, but then you can also add these other elements to it, which is let's make this more disciplined. Let's make it focused on standardized benefits to, to reduce the costs and also the provider level competition where the beneficiary, the patient can save some money when they pick a lower cost standardized bundle of services. Got it. This is a bit of a well, not a bit. It's a huge political hot button issue. But I wanted to bring it up because I read it in the book and I felt like uh, it would be worthwhile addressing. 13% of the uninsured or 2.9 million people reside in, in the US as illegal immigrants. They don't qualify for Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. How do we think about this group of uninsured patients when we're talking about healthcare reform? Right. Well, let me say a couple of things on a preliminary basis. Number one is, this is not the topic of our podcast, but I'm very much for immigration reform. I think our country, like so many issues, immigration is something that there is an, a both and question here, which is, I, I'm very much for liberalized legal immigration. I, you know, I think we should be a welcoming country, allowing a lot of people to come to our country legally. And but it needs to be orderly, too. And you can't have chaos. And we've allowed a, a sort of a chaotic situation to emerge over 30 years or so. And it needs to have some order to it. Having said that, the idea that we're going to deport a whole bunch of people that have lived here for a long time to countries that many of these people have never been to or haven't been to in a long time, I find that abhorrent and not likely anyway. OK, so the two parties are going to have to find their way to some resolution of this population that makes it a little bit more sensible for a big country like ours that has a lot of immigrants, how to process this in a little bit more rationally. Now, vis-a-vis healthcare, what does it mean? It means that there's a big group of people that are not legally eligible for some subsidized coverage that have incomes that might otherwise make them eligible. And that's why they're uninsured. And, but having said that, I think it's also people, your audience should know that there are many people in the country without proper documentation that are insured, they work, that don't provide proper documentation, but that are working and get coverage and so on, even despite the fact that they are not residing in the country with proper documentation at the moment. Okay. So it's a complicated topic. So what to do? Well, what I say is keep, keep in mind that many Many people might look at this situation and say, oh, the U.S. is being very cold-hearted toward this population. And I think, we, ought, we, like I said, we do need immigration reform that rationalizes and makes legitimate the status of everybody. Okay? Having said that, when you look at other high-income countries, they don't just say, hey, come to our country and we'll give you our nationalized health system benefits. Okay? That happens in a few cases, but most of the big countries very much including Canada, very much including the UK, 
they say, look, if you come and you're not residing in the country legally, you can't just go and get full benefits from our nationalized health system. Okay. So the U.S. in a certain sense has done the same thing through its subsidy system for that population. Now, in the book, as you note, what I say is, look, one thing we ought to do right away is make sure regardless of their legal status, kids should be covered. Okay. And then we need immigration reform to deal with legitimizing the status of many people who have been in this country for a long time, maybe perhaps without proper documentation. And then we need to, you know, rather do a real immigration reform that has a more rational way of being an open and welcoming country, but in an orderly way. So we don't kind of continually go back into this problem. I really wanted to talk to you about federal support for residency programs, because when I read that chapter, a lot of it sort of hit home for me, having recently graduated from residency. So you write that 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 federal support needs reform as well. On average, Medicare, which pays for a lot of residency programs, sends approximately $129,000 per resident per year to the nation's teaching hospitals. And I can tell you that even in a city like New York, where I did my training, the salaries for residents aren't even close to that high. So a lot of this seems to go to overhead or indirect costs. How do we think about the problem of federal funding of residents? Where do you see room for positive reform here? Yeah. I mean, I think in certain sense, we've gotten into an irrational dead end that we kind of need to hit reverse and kind of get out of if we could. It's very difficult politically, though, because of the money is, of course, created constituencies and the hospitals are dependent on it and so on. There's a couple of things to say about this, as you indicate from that chapter. I would really loosen up sort of where people can get their residency uh, training prior to becoming fully independent petitioners, you know, capable of billing on their own and so on. And I would try to get, you know, so much of it is done in inpatient institutions, big inpatient institutions in urban areas now. And, you know, many physicians don't end up practicing anywhere near that after as soon as they get done with a residency, they go off and do wherever they're going to go and they never see in a facility like that again. Okay. And so that's not to discount how much knowledge they pick up through that process. I don't minimize that at all, but we might want to start loosening up where people get trained so that allows a little bit more connective experience to where they end up actually being practicing physicians. Okay. So open up the institutions that can get subsidized. I'd also try to really loosen up the number of slots so that we don't have this choke point at the point where people have to get matched to a residency program. That's a real limiting factor in terms of how many new physicians enter into the market every year. By the way, if you're looking for competition and lowering prices, I mean, it's kind of economics, you know, real simple, in a simple level, more supply means lower price, okay? And I guarantee you, if we had more physician supply, the overall price would be lower, not higher, okay? So whatever we can do to increase the supply of good, not low quality, good, highly trained physicians who are very capable of taking care of patients, the better. So I would really urge loosening the program up, making the federal money follow the resident wherever they choose to go, allow many more types of institutions to come in and try to direct the states through their credentialing system. Let's not you know, make this such a choke point. Let's, just, let's try to loosen this up a little bit so we have more institutions providing more residency programs to more people so that our physician supply can react and, and adjust as markets uh, dictate. I agree. And one of the things that you also bring up is the kind of being a little more liberal with, you know, international medical graduates. Some some of those folks are close friends or colleagues. They're phenomenal physicians. There, There shouldn't be these really tight number of slots for them. I feel like we're we're really limiting ourselves here by restricting that. Right. Now, there's two issues on there that kind of hold it back a little bit. One is, you know, a bit of like some of the things that I'm hinting at here, which is some physicians in the United States don't want a bunch of new physicians coming from abroad that take away their business and practice, lower their practice volumes. I That I completely disagree with. I don't think that should be our attitude at all. Secondly, there is 
sort of a little bit of a legitimate sense of saying, well, I mean, do we, these are good, highly trained physicians leaving their home countries to come to the United States. Don't their home countries need them too? And there's a little bit of a guilty feeling that some of these people want to come to the United States, even though their home countries might desperately need physician care. Now, there are a million reasons why someone would want to come to the United States. And I'm not saying that the people are wrong to want to come. In fact, that I think many cases are absolutely right to want to do so and to do so. And so I think we should just let this open up, let people make their own individual decisions and let, you know, freedom reign here a little bit and let people choose to go where they think they can do the most good and that it's best suited to their own family circumstances. And, you know, I think they might end up having flows going both ways. Overall, last question, overall, Jim, are you bullish or bearish on America's ability to deal with rising healthcare costs? Where do you see things going? Well, on the general, I'm bullish in the sense of be a solution one way or another. I'm a little bearish on my solution. <laughs> so I think the most, the more likely scenario, candidly, is that, you know, people start to throw up their hands and get fed up and they do see more and more control to a price regulating federal apparatus of some sort, a little bit like how they did with the, the drug pricing rules that were uh, enacted in 2022 this year. I could see some of that same sentiment moving quickly into other areas of the health system. And they just allow the federal government to set prices across the board. And those prices will be lots lower. Okay. And irrespective of access questions, what it does, you know, it's very, you know, in a big complicated system like this, setting prices, you know, has a great salutary feeling to it, but you, you don't know what the unintended consequences are. On that note, Jim Capretta, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was really edifying. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aaron, for having me on. Appreciate it. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.